John Kasich served as governor of Ohio from 2011 to 2019, after having served nine terms in the U.S. House of Representatives. He ran for the Republican nomination for president in both 2000 and 2016. Since he left office, he has joined CNN as a contributor. Today, he will discuss the bipartisan work he is doing throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and his frustration about the lack of national political leadership. Let's listen in. Joe, you know, what, what can I add to what you said? There's, frankly, I'm beyond, I'm like post-partisan, you know, when people say, well, well you know, uh, bipartisanship, it's like, I mean, we're just human beings. Why can't we just sit down in a room instead of calling ourselves one thing or another? Let's just solve problems, right? And um, set aside the egos and set aside, you know, but it's, it's hard for a lot of people that you have been, you know, what can you say? You've been one of the great leaders. I think it had John McCain been able to figure his way out to selecting you as his running mate, he probably would have been elected president. I mean, it just uh, it could have worked out that way. And you you've shown so, such great courage. Are you running as an independent? And you know, what can I say? And your wife, of course, has been at your side for a long time. So I'm honored to to work with you. And um, hey, friend. But where where are my thoughts today? My thoughts today are that, you know, we've been through this incredible black swan event and the black swan event provides an opportunity and should provide an opportunity for looking at the fragile nature of all of our most complex uh, organizations, Um, whether whether it's the healthcare system, the education system, the transportation system. I mean, we're not we're going to have a new normal. We're not going to have the old normal. And then when we look at government, we know that it is not performing very well. And it's it's interesting because I kind of got part of my old band back together again today. And I have been thinking and we are now going to start down a path of trying to uh, to do a um, as much of a redesign of the federal government and perhaps a redesign of government. Uh, that's been done in a very long time. And what I would tell you is um, back, you know, in 97, we balanced the budget. But what people don't realize is I think I started in in 1989 writing my own budgets. um, And they were budgets that were inconsistent with the president, the Republican president's budget and also the Democrat budget. So I started offering my own. And I thought it was important to be prepared, never dreaming it would take as long as it would to get to the um, get to the balanced budget. Then when I ran for governor, uh, before I even became governor, I started plotting out what I thought should be done to try to fix the state of Ohio and have it recover. And so what I'm trying to do now with some of the of the veterans of these of these battles is to get them to begin to think about certain principles to gather a lot of the old information that was put together by, you know, Rivlin and, and the uh, people that work with me and with, I think there's some things from Panetta. Uh, uh, there's just so much. And I've got uh, one of the, one of my old pals from the Dominici years, and we're beginning to think, beginning to assemble all those documents to, to put together our principles and then try to come forward with something uh, that can at least begin the debate about what we do once we get through through this crisis. And it requires the federal government to be fundamentally restructured. Uh, and, you know, what we notice with Black Swan events is Black Swans fundamentally come about 
when uh, these complex organizations have not attended to their weaknesses. And uh, we have so many weaknesses now in the federal government, frankly, state governments, local governments, but it's just one portion of our whole society and affords us, I think, a great opportunity to reinvent a lot of things and to get us, uh, kick us harder up into the 21st century and can yield um, fantastic results. But uh, so I'm starting on that tiny little project now and keep you apprised of, of how it goes. So that's kind of what I have to say to start and you know, I'll take whatever questions you might, might have. Uh, that's a great start and uh, thanks for doing that. Uh, if there's any way we can help you on that, either as a group or individual, let us know. It's a great one. Um, why don't I just open the floor and see if any of our, we've got a, a great group of leaders from business and government on the line and uh, uh, they're uh, usually full of questions. I'm going to start it, John, uh, uh, just to give people a chance to think. Um, if somebody asks you so far in the COVID-19, which you rightly call the Black Swan event, um, what are your takeaways? In other words, um, what, what do we, not just what do we do now, but what do we do longer range, um, either with regard to the next infectious disease pandemic or, uh, or just government generally? I was kind of intrigued that you made a reference to um, some takeaways about the healthcare system or the public health system. Well, Joe, just think about this. You know, here we're dealing, you know, I'm very involved now with um, with John Kerry on World War Zero and the, right. and the whole climate uh, crisis. And, you know, it's interesting. It's almost like a, a no labels project that John and I had our first town hall with uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger out here in Columbus and uh, had an enormous turnout to discuss this before the virus. In fact, one of the last big gatherings before the virus hit. And when we think about the, the the current virus, we 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 know at some point that we will have a treatment as to when we would have a vaccine. No one knows, and it's a it's a difficult one. But if we go over the edge when it comes to global warming, climate change, and we haven't done anything, there will be no vaccine. And so you know, it's kind of interesting. I I called George Schultz, who's you know he's a a young and spry 99 <laughs> and uh, yes. how he got started in this because, you know, Jim Baker and George Schultz have played a prominent role in terms of uh, carbon trading. And uh, he said that Reagan called him into the office and Reagan told him that he'd read some article about the disappearing ozone. And he looked at Schultz and he said, you know, it sounds like it's pretty serious as you can imagine Reagan saying. And Schultz looked at him and Reagan said, well, whether it's true or not, we certainly need an insurance policy. And what Kerry and I are trying to do on this, along with several others, is to try to build a significant bipartisan, there we are with that word again, a group of people who worry about, you know, the future of the world. And, uh, you know, I think the faith community believes that the Lord created this. I know you do, but we need to be good stewards and not, and not worshipers, but good stewards. Uh, and and those people who are so minded to worrying about the the earth, we don't we're not coming forward now with a bunch of prescriptions. We we want to just people to say, yeah, it's a problem, and we should do some things, and we should take some steps. 
So I, I think that that's very, very important in terms of when we think about black swans. And then how about, how about uh, Joe, you're a defense expert. You know, if you get one of these electronic magnetic pulses that gets leveled at us, you know, uh, you tell me what we do in, this, in the great cities of our country. I believe what we need to do as we look at these complex systems is begin to, to, to look at where the weaknesses are. You know, in the healthcare system today, there's 163, I believe, 163 critical drugs that, that we depend on in, in the surgery rooms that are being, being produced in China. I mean, who would have believed that? All to, to make one extra buck by some private equity guy or woman. And, you know, they're producing these drugs in China, in India. What, what the hell are we not doing it here? Um, so, you know, I think look at these systems. And, you know, I think one of the biggest problems we have, Joe, is, you know, the, the necessary always gets crowded out by the immediate. I do want to tell you a story that's it's been in my head for quite a while. We and it, it and I've had a couple emails sent to me in the last 24 hours. We had a big dam here right outside of Columbus. And um, some of the engineers with the, one of the departments came to see me and said they were worried about that dam. Now, people had been worried about the dam for about 40 years. And when they saw when this engineer came into my office, I'll never forget it. He said, you know, I don't sleep at night because when there's a big storm, we're worried the dam's going to burst. So I said, well, let's go out and look at it. So we went out there to look at the dam. I said, OK, what can we patch? He said, nothing. The whole thing is, is not usable. And there was a lot of heat at the time to not lower the water and, and to rebuild the dam. Uh, and a lot of criticism, not just to me, but the frontline people that had to go out there and supervise the building. Well, it got rebuilt, and then they had this big rock with a big memorial to, to myself and the guy that took all the heat. But now the dam is rebuilt. The property values around the house have gone up. And there was a case where, thank God, where the necessary became part of the immediate, where we looked at our weaknesses. And so I think we need to, to look at our systems and figure out how we can build those and get around them. And then also to think about entirely new ways of being able uh, to deliver things. And, you know, whether it is healthcare, how about education and what the universities are facing today? Uh, you know, too many of them dependent on room and board. Uh, you know, what about what's it going to look like in terms of online education? Uh, we know the same thing with transportation. What are the airlines going to look like over the course of the next year? Uh, these are things that have to be anticipated, you know, and, and try to make sure that the necessary gets more, gets more consideration, not just the immediate that's in front of us. And you know how that worked over there in the Senate, right? I mean, it's like here this today. And the, and the other stuff, we'll get to it tomorrow. You know, manana, manana, sometimes manana comes. It's a great answer um, and some great stories. I must tell you that one of the worries that I've had about the partisan gridlock in Congress is exactly what you've said, that um, there's, there's not the willingness to take the risks to deal with problems I mean, political risk to deal with problems before they come crises or catastrophes. And that's that's a real loss. I'm, I got a bunch of people asking questions. Nancy, did you want to say something? Yeah, uh, yeah I, I just wanted to ask and, and mention what we're doing. I know that you came to our problem solver convention many years ago. 
But we have a theory of change where we believe Republicans and Democrats need to work together. We have three phases. We built the Problem Solvers Caucus. Now we're out of the room. We are building this Senate uh, bicameral. I mean, we're meeting with them weekly. We have Governor Hogan coming in tomorrow. We usually get seven or eight senators and 30 members of Congress, but we hope they become their own independent body and we get out of the room and, and leave convening to themselves. But the third and final phase, we are will be focused after this election on 2024. We believe that you need to integrate the federal government with Republicans and Democrats working for a problem solver president. So we will begin after November creating a transition file that nobody's created before of bipartisans willing to serve regardless of party as long as it's a problem solver. I just uh, I spoke to John Bridgeland, who was domestic uh, policy advisor during Bush and Bill Galston, who was with Clinton, people like this idea. What do you think about that? Do you think there's a day where we could get at the political appointee level bipartisans that are competent uh, to integrate? As we know, uh, they can hold hands together and solve problems. Well, yeah, I, I, I do think that that's um, it's a good idea. Um, you know, what you really want people to do is you want them to look at the world the way that Lieberman looked at the world. And that is, I don't really give two cents about all the people who are yelling and screaming because today they scream at you tomorrow. They, they call you a hero. And then the next day they don't, they don't know your name. So when you're there, why don't you do something and, and not worry about all the politics, but that's, that's sort of endemic to the character of a person who's involved, you know, and do they, are they willing to make choices and are they willing to do things and kind of, leave their egos out of it. I mean, none of us can do that very well, but it's it's certainly a goal. And to be able to put together a list of people who can work together, uh, I think is a, is a terrific idea. Just for full disclosure, I've had a preliminary talk with one of your chairman of, the, of these uh, problem solvers. And I, unbeknownst to any of you or me or anything else, I told him that, that I th- thought I could become in an informal advisor to them somehow. And they wanted to know if I had a Democrat in mind and I've come up with one, but I'm going to just leave it there. I just want you to know that I've, I told them I've been more more involved in more bipartisan deals, as Joe pointed out, whether it's welfare reform or whether it was corporate welfare reform or balancing the budget or changing the Department of Defense. I don't think there's any other way to do things other than to uh, to be able to do it on a bipartisan basis. Now, in my state, I had great success for about seven years. And then, frankly, I think they got tired of me. And then it got down to, you know, what's inside of a person. So I think those efforts are good. But at the end, it really gets down to who these people are, right? Do they Are they really committed to doing these things? And I also believe that in government, I, this is my second, I went in, I got out, I went in, I got out. I I kind of believe in having limited time inside the government. But let me also say to you, I think you shouldn't miss the bigger picture, which is the federal government is too big, too out of control, not focused, totally inefficient. And we need to get we need to we need to shrink it down because it's, it is just simply not focused. And, uh, you know, and it's a very hard thing to do. Uh, yeah, and I'm, hopefully I can come with some really good examples of what should be done. And uh, I, I just think that it has gone well beyond the scope of what our founders wanted, all these different roles of the federal government. And, and I'm going to give you one really good, vivid example of how hard it was to get this done, on, because both parties oppose a lot of this stuff, by the way. Um, 
At one point, I had suggested that we frankly didn't need much of a federal department of transportation, and I'll tell you why. The states tax themselves, they send their money to Washington, and then a bunch of appropriators sit in the room and then send it back, depends on who has the political influence. What I'd suggested is send a couple pennies to Washington, um, because that's necessary to maintain the interstate, but we're not building any more interstate, and let the states figure out how to apply those, those precious dollars towards improving infrastructure in, in their states. I don't know that you could get that done even today, but to me, it makes perfect sense. And at one point, I suggested that we gather up the, the important things in the Commerce Department. You know, the Commerce Department is a place fundamentally where politicians uh, place their, uh, you know, the, the, rel- the, the kids of the relatives who were the big supporters. How <laughs> you say that the Commerce Department is like an attic where you store all of your stuff. Well, take the census out or some of the things. I don't remember everything that's in there. It's been a while. But, you know, combine departments. Get rid of some stuff. You know, I mean, those are the kinds of things we have to think about. Because I got to tell you, the scale of the debt is frightening. And so that's a long answer to your question. But the more you can gather up people of goodwill, like my old buddy Tim Penny or Chris Shays, uh, you know, uh, John Hickenlooper, of course, he may be a senator. Uh, this, these are great people and can make a great difference. Thanks, John. It's great to see to hear your mind at work, really. That was a great answer. First question, Andrew Tisch. Great. Thank, thank you, Governor. How are you today? That's not, that's not my question. I'm, but, uh, I'm comfortably numb, to quote Pink Floyd. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that uh, every time that they try and reimagine gover- government, it gets um, hung up in the uh, in Congress because of all the prerogatives that are uh, there in Congress. Do you do a base closing type of uh, restructuring, or, or what is the what is the way to actually execute any kind of real reimagination of government, given the practicality of the um, uh, institutions and who has what prerogatives? Yeah. You know, still much in practicality. Uh, I start off with no practicality, and I think about what should be, and then I deal with the practicality later. And you know, I've been successful in doing that. You know, I inherited about a twenty percent budget hole in Ohio, and we came out of it. Now we have almost a three billion dollar surplus. Um, so let's get the plan first, and then and then you start dealing with with the practicality of of how you do it. You know, I, I the base closing idea is an interesting one. I was actually involved in that when Dick Army first came out with it. I helped them, and we need more base closings. Uh, but you know, it's why I say it's not necessarily a Republican or Democrat thing. And you know, when I look at the Department of Defense, at times I call it the Uniform Public Works Committee. Uh, you know, because I got to keep my base, I got to keep this, I got to keep that, I got to keep building weapons systems. I don't know where Lieberman was, but I work with Dellums to limit the production of the B-2 bomber that went from 132 planes to 20, which was a hell of an accomplishment that no one pays any attention to. But we need more things like that. And sir, what I would say to you is the looming debt that we are going to face is going to be so severe once we're through the crisis. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have spent this money here now. I'm not saying that at all. But at some point, we have to deal with this. and. It's going to be, I think it's going to be so significant. It's going to threaten the markets and everything else 
that I'm not sure you're going to need a gimmick as much as you're going to need the, the, the leaders, the pivotal leaders to say, nope, this is what we're going to do. What I have found over the course of my career is that the leaders are critical and the followers are important too, but the leaders are critical because they're the ones that say, nope, I'm sorry, we're going to get this done. And so part of it is going to depend on the quality of, of who's in charge. But I agree with you. It's, a, it's hard. It's daunting. You can't do it overnight. You bite off chunks of it. And you got to be creative. And I think like the people that are on this call, you know, what is the, the way in which you deal with Social Security is such a mess now. It was, you know, we had had some ideas for it before, but now they're so significant. And then what are the creative things? You know, if you're going to take away something from somebody who's upper income, well, what do they get on the other side? I mean, you have to think that way. Think creatively out of the box. But uh, I think we're going to have, you know, Rahm Emanuel said, right, never waste a good crisis. And I think we will have, to me, there's three emerging things that we have to pay attention to, three emerging, quote, crises. One, climate. Two, mental health. And three, debt. They are the three big things that are going to stare us right in the face. And, and I'm hopeful that, you know, we're going to be able to begin to answer the bell. That is that answer it, Mr. Fish. I hope so. It's very helpful. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Uh, next is Glenn Lowenstein from Texas. Texas. Thank you, um, Governor. Thank you for being with us. And I just wanted to show you this book, which is about how to understand complex systems in biology. I'll send you through Nancy the title. It's published at Princeton. It's really helpful. In the, in the vein you were talking about in terms of weakness to get a, a framework to analyze things. But that's not my question. I just wanted to point that out. My, question, my question is, um, you were a principal in the most recent presidential election. And so you know the, that what happens in the middle of one, what happens in the nation during that time. Right now, no labels and problem solvers is really at a tipping point where it's doing amazing work and it's spreading out nationally. Do you have any advice for this whole group as we move through this year, expanding the network and so we are maximizing our success in the midst of all that stuff that you went through? I, I, yeah, I, I really think that you're starting to get some momentum. I think it's been a long time coming. The reason why I made that call to the problem solvers is I began to get to sense that they were that they were doing uh, better, that they were they were gaining some momentum. Um, I, I just think you have to keep at it, and it's it's kind of uh, you know maybe two steps forward, one step back. I wasn't going to say one step forward, two steps back, but I, I think I think. At some point, this is going to catch on. And you know what's amazed me, Joe? I don't know if this is what's amazed you. Is I've been waiting for these leaders to emerge, people who stand up and they tell their party and their leaders, "Uh, uh-uh, I'm not going along." And not only right. did they say, "Along," I'm going to say, "I'm not voting for your for your most important things until you do some of what I want." And I haven't seen those people. And I've been wondering where they are. It's like, you know, everybody's sort of stuck. I know you guys are doing good work, but you tell me who's been standing up and saying, no, not, I guess the political environment is such, Joe, that 
hard for us to even put ourselves in it. But, um, you know, I, I just what I would say is keep at it because I think I think this movement is inevitable. And I think more and more uh, young people, I can tell you, my kids, I mean, they don't care about the parties anymore. I think they want to see solutions. And um, so, you know, I'm optimistic that just keep going, keep putting some money in. You got to have money in this. If you don't have money, you can't have staff. If you don't have staff, you can't have organization. If you don't have an organization, you go nowhere. So I hope there's some, you know, that you feel as though your contributions are making a difference, but just have to keep on keeping on. Because I think at some point the fever's going to break. That's what I think. Well, hopefully we're, we're um, expanding our hard dollars by a, a large multiple this year, and you'll see that. Thanks a lot. Yes, yeah. thank you. Can I uh, say uh, two things? One, John, thanks for helping the problem solvers. But the second is uh, it does require money. And one of the things folks on the call and a lot of others are doing is saying to leaders uh, in Congress particularly, if, if you decide you want to stand up and tell your leaders you're not going along because you don't believe in it. You don't think it's right for the country. And you think you're going to suffer. They're going to cut back money. We got your back. We're, we're going to make up that difference. And uh, it's just practically speaking, that's that, that's really critically important. And, and thanks to well, everybody on the call, really, uh, we're, we're, we feel confident. We've done that the last couple of cycles, and we feel confident we can do it even more. Joe, let me uh, ask you a question. Go ahead. Let me ask, I'm going to ask you a question because you basically, you know, and you were in a position where your seat was being threatened and you just basically said, forget it. I'll run as an independent. Haven't yeah. you been amazed that more of these leaders are just, they seem to be so frightened about things, but how come you weren't? And what did you do to get over the hump? Besides the fact that your wife would have kicked you in the tail had you become a, a groveler, I know that. So what? Yeah, what would you exactly. Have? You got it. Uh, you know, it was uh, complicated. I mean, part of it is what you said earlier on, John, where you get to a point, uh, hopefully sooner than later, where you say, uh, either by fate, hard work, or whatever, luck, here I am. I'm a governor. I'm a U.S. senator. So what am I going to do? Spend all my time figuring out how I'm going to get reelected? I, I, I'm here for a reason. I want to try to make a difference. So, okay, sometimes when the party leaders wanted me to do something else, I had to keep saying that to myself. The second is, you, you know, you work hard at home. But I must say, when I, when I ran into the wall in 2006, uh, I'll never forget at the end of uh, 2005, my pollster did a baseline poll and he said, you're in trouble in the, in the Democratic primary because of the Iraq war. And uh, unless you're going to change your position, you should think about running as an independent. And of course, I said, what? I mean, I've been working for this state for years. I, 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 I was foolish, really. And I said, hey, if, if, if uh, the Democratic Party doesn't want me, they're going to have to kick me out. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to run. So I thought I could make the case. It was close, but I lost the primary. But, but I was very lucky that in Connecticut, we have one of those laws that says even if you lose, lose the primary, you can come back and run as a third party candidate. And God bless the people of Connecticut were great to me. 
But it was, uh, you know, I was running as an incumbent and I had been kicked out by the Democrats. So the Republicans embraced me, of course. Uh, and I got a lot of independent votes. So it's, it was uh, it was a combination. It's remarkable. Yeah, it was that year I had the, the, the most difficult day of my life when I career, not my life. When I lost the primary and probably the most thrilling day when I won as an independent. So, you know, go figure. Yeah. Uh, thanks for Story. That's uh, story. That, was ther- that was therapy for me to uh, go through that, and you haven't even charged me anything for the uh, yeah, therapy. I, I, I think it's. I think it's a. It. You know, it's easy to sit up in the stands and and say, you know, but you did it. It's easy to sit up in the stands and. I mean, running for re-election. You know, I had expanded Medicaid, and people came and they said, "Oh, what a courageous decision!" I said. Really, it took a lot of courage to decide that 600,000 people could get health care. And I guess yeah. I, I didn't even think about the fact that I'd be defeated because of it. But, hey, it's one of the best decisions I made, you know, to yeah. uh, to do that. And, you know, when I ran for re-election, I never talked about Obama or anything else. I, you know, they went, you got to go out and attack Obama. I said, I'm not attacking Obama. And I ended up winning 86 out of 88 counties, one of the great wins uh, in Ohio uh, political history. And I'm not saying that because I'm that great, because I ain't that great. But it it just shows you that I think that people, I guess these primaries are just crazy now. I mean, people are so rabid, but I still think you're a leader. You're going to figure out a way either to get close or figure out some way to win. And if you don't win and you kept your principles, did you really lose? Right. I mean, that's a big question, right? right? People don't yep. even remember I'm who gonna, we are anymore, though. You're right. I'm going to cite none other than my mother. The night in 2000, when the election was decided, 36 days later, whatever. And uh, my mother calls me up and she says, she's in Stanford. She says, just please remember this. You lost an election tonight. You didn't lose your life. You're a young man. You got a lot ahead of you. And I was still in the Senate, of course. So uh, I, I had a remaining 12 years. There was one, hard to believe, my mother agreed with John McCain. He came over <laughs> to me when I came back. He came back, unlikely duo. Came back to, when I came back to the Senate, he said, uh, you're going to have the best years of your career ahead of you and uh, most productive in the Senate. And he was right. Uh, Rich Livermore, you're, you're up. Greetings, greetings. Thank you. Thank you very much, Governor. Um, first of all, I'm trying to weave together a lot of the threads in your comments, these black swan events and what they're leading to. Um, you uh, call for massive restructuring. And I, when you say restructuring, my question is, are you talking legislative and executive and judicial? And is that not really calling for something like a, um, a, a unilateral, bilateral constitutional convention? Oh, you know, I went down that road on the balanced budget thing, and that was just like, oh, my. You know, I was it was opposed as much from the right as it was from the left. It was so ridiculous. I I don't know if you look. All I wanted. All I'm trying to do now is to say to some of my folks and we'll see how far we get because I don't have big staff. But we're going to see if we can work our way through based on a lot of things that have been said before. Let me just see what I can get on a piece of paper and get it out there and then see how people want to chew on it. Uh, I, I'm open to really anything, but I, uh, 
you know, I don't know. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. I, I, there's no reason to dismiss any ideas, you know, because I really believe this, you know, when this debt, they say when the debt gets to be as big as the GDP, you got a crisis, you know, and now it's going to, I'm sure going to be well, well, more, a lot more than that. But, you know, we're going to have to deal with it. I mean, you're going to have massive inflation or you're going to, you're going to have the collapsing of certain parts of, uh, of the financial structure. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm not right. But the numbers are just going to be so enormous. So, you know, maybe maybe something like that. You know, I always thought that a convention uh, uh, that would focus on balancing the federal budget would really revive people's interest, legitimate interest in government. You know, kids would look at that. They'd study it and they'd actually, you know, understand Jefferson and Adams and you know, and all these people were, uh, because that's one of the things we, we really need to do better of is to, I think, two things. One, you know, educate people about our history. And secondly, I think it's really critical for people to have financial literacy. And part of the reason for that is you've got to give people, I called Alan Greenspan, I don't know, it was about a year or two ago, and I said, Alan, this division between rich and poor is really terrible and we got to figure something out and, and he, you know what he said to me he says you know one of the things John that, that that troubles him so much and he didn't have an answer for all these things and he admits that if people who don't have much put their money in the market and didn't pull it out at the sign of trouble it's amazing because of the power of the market how much money can be accumulated a federal workers could always have that. You know, they either pick a stock program, a bond program, or a stock and bond program. It's basically certified, you know, blue chip kind of a thing. Um, it's so important for people to have financial literacy, particularly in an era of Social Security. And, um, you know, and, and to a lot of retirement programs, how do you manage stuff so that you can you can build a nice, nice uh, nest egg as you get through life? So, you know, these are all things that kind of have to be thought about, but let's not dismiss anything at this at this stage. Good. Uh, next is Maxine Clark. Hello, Governor Kasich. It's nice to see you. Uh, we were introduced by my friend Greg Went a few years ago, and it was an honor to meet you and to support you at that time. So, uh, where do you live? You have a beautiful Louis, home, St. Louis, Missouri. Ah, okay. Um, only one St. Louis, you know, only one that I know of. <laughs> yes, that's correct. There is one, only one. Um, I am also a very, uh, a ben my mentor is Dick Gephardt, and Dick is listening to you today. Sounds a lot like listening to Dick and all the things that uh, he always worked on both sides of the of the aisle to get things done. And you made a comment about the future and how we have to just really kind of remake government. And I I agree with you. I think we could could combine a lot of things. I see this as a business person all the time. But I think it requires a different level of leadership when you're going to combine um, departments, you're going to combine efforts so that you can make sure that you protect those different things. And I'm, I'm wondering, what do you think, how, what kinds of um, organizations or I'm not sure even how to describe it, that we could be doing to start to build up young leaders in our country, whether it's through the Service Corps, Teach for America, or um uh, the Peace Corps or City Year, whatever those are, start to bring young leaders who don't have uh, predisposed brains uh, to one party or another, but just want to get to solutions. How do we as a government support that kind of training and leadership for young people to think uh, in a new way? 
Well, you know, I've always, a lot of people play around with the idea of a year of national service. I, I just have, haven't come down one way or the other on it, but it, it certainly is a, a pretty interesting idea about getting people to, to think, uh, to live a life a little bit bigger than themselves. You know, as for me, uh, there's not a, there's not a talk that goes by for me where I'm out making speeches or talking to young people at universities or wherever, where I, I tell them they were made special for a special purpose and they're part of a mosaic, you know, and, uh, once they discover their talents, because we all have different talents, right? Some in business, some in government, some, but whatever it is, because everybody's not going to be, you know, kind of a, a hard charging leader because you got to have some hard charging followers. Uh, you know, I know everybody's complaining or Scotty Pippen's complaining today. They didn't get enough cred in the Michael Jordan documentary. I think he looked pretty damn good. I, I, I kind of like everybody looks at, at Scotty Pippen now and say, what a great guy. But everybody has their certain skills. What I think we we need to, to communicate to people in whatever way you want to do it, and however, is you need to live a life a little bigger than yourself. Because when you live a life a little bigger than yourself, you feel great. You're using your skills to do something and join a team. And that's how you find satisfaction. I mean, I, I, how, can I, how can I give you some easy solution to this? But, you know, I, I think it's I'm a believer that the change comes from the bottom up, not the top down. Now, this is another concept that I'm, I'm glad it came into my mind. And here's what I mean by that. If you think about the great movements in our country and I can't see that lady, you just she's disappeared from my screen. She looks so nice. Could you put her back up there again? And I was admiring the painting on the wall, thinking maybe I could go out to St. Louis and snag that thing. Where is she? Did she drop off? Right here. No, right here. There she is. You know, um, change comes from the bottom up. If you think about the civil rights movement, when Martin Luther King went to see the Kennedys, he left very disappointed. It was the work of the people in the churches, the trenches, uh, who drove the changes in the civil rights law. When it came to women's suffrage, I think the same thing is true. You know, look how long you don't think those guys ever wanted to give women the power. And the women demanded it. And then they were joined by some enlightened men to say, this is not right. And then all of a sudden we got it. I, I believe, I actually believe that if it wasn't for the protests in the streets, we'd probably still be in Vietnam. After all, we're still in Afghanistan. Um, I believe the change, you know, this whole whole business of, of, uh, of gay marriage came from the bottom up. It didn't come from the top down. And what's interesting is we've got to believe in ourselves. You know, we, we can't go and do everything to solve everything. But what I can do is take care and try to guide and take not take care of and, and try to guide. Not that I'm always doing it. My children, their friends, the young people I, I'm in touch with. If I can do my part and you do your part and we can show them that it's not about the next buck. I mean, part of the reason why we are. Our medical system in this drug business is problem. You know, all these pharmaceuticals produced in China is people were chasing the last buck. I mean, I worked on I worked at Lehman Brothers when, you know, I was out here in Ohio. But I watched the fact that the overage leveraged to make another dollar, another dollar, another dollar. And all the chairs came tumbling down in part of what I have. I hope happens through this crisis is we begin to discover that there are more important things in life than just making another buck. And I think it's important to money and to be successful in business.
but it's not the end all beat all. There's, there's more important things in life. Uh, so I think it's up to each of us from the bottom up to try to inspire the people around us, whether they're young people, whether they're in our business world. And it's not about preaching. It's about doing. I, I think it's about doing is that's the best preaching is what you do, not what you say. I don't know what you think about all that. I'm open to any other ideas, though. Those are good, John. Uh, we're really honored to have working with no labels. Glad to ask her to ask a question now. Congresswoman Lynn Shank. Oh. Well, hi, John. I, you love, know, that. I John, love that lady. Congresswoman title is so old. And it's only used by people in Washington here <laughs> in San Diego. It's like, huh? No, you're, you're a great Always remember that. Oh, yeah. A, a couple of things. First of all, a comment, uh, kind of sad this morning, I learned that in California, as we're looking to get kids back to school virtually or in person, they're cutting civics and social studies. It's just, it's heartbreaking to your comment about what we need to do. Uh, <laughs> they're doing the exact opposite but some of us are going to fight that. But anyway, I, I just wanted to say to those who didn't know, you, you alluded to Tim Penny, uh, John, you, the Penny Kasich caucus, because the Democrats were in the majority and you recruited me to it. Uh, I always felt that no labels had its roots in the Penny Kasich caucus. Thanks. And so building on what Nancy had said earlier and Glenn, uh, uh are there lessons that we can take from that those old mm. days when you and and Tim were recruiting members? I remember you saying to me, uh, you you had looked at my district that had just been reapportioned, and even though it was a Republican district, you know it, the, the reapportionment had created sort of a a moderate district that a Democrat such as myself could win. Uh, are are there lessons that we can learn and? As uh, you were talking about the calling the problem solvers, co-chairs, uh, are there people from who are still alive uh, from the Penny Kasich caucus days that we could sure. maybe get together again, you know, regroup and be helpful to no labels uh, going back to those days when we really did uh, achieve a great deal. And, and I will say publicly, and you may not remember this, but Newt Gingrich went to you and asked you to come and campaign against me, and you refused to do it. And I'll never forget that. Well, I always figured that if I campaigned against you when I was in San Diego, you wouldn't give me a spare bedroom for free. So <laughs> behind that. Well, let me, and Nancy, I, this uh, this would be interesting to you. You know, the Penny Kasich deal was Tim Penny, who was a really, he's a great friend of mine and still really active and terrific. Uh, he he agreed to vote for the Clinton tax increase if he could have a chance to cut some spending. And I went to him and I said, Penny, you really need me to help you. <laughs> I volunteered myself emphatically. So we decided as a group to cut a penny out of every dollar in federal spending. And it was made up of Republicans and Democrats. And we agreed that unless there was a majority that was against the recommendations, that it would go forward. Now, it was interesting. We had all these wonderful people in the Penny Kasich camp, and we ended up losing the vote on the House floor by, I don't know, two or three votes. And uh, the President Clinton, Hillary, uh, Hillary, a friend of mine, uh, Bill, too, 
came up and campaigned against it. The Republican appropriators campaigned against it. It was irresponsible. You know, that's the word they use in Washington. That's irresponsible. Well, to me, it's irresponsible to keep doing what we're doing. And Lynn, I've checked with Tim and see if some of those folks are still, they're all around. They were all pretty young people. And it was the spirit. And frankly, we came close. And it's what I always say was the first shot in the war to, to get the budget balanced. And so people remember, I know we were balanced two or three years. We paid down the largest amount of the publicly held debt in modern time. It was really remarkable. And it's what happened when we, um, when we worked together. So um, we, we were somewhat practical, but we were back to, to Mr. Fish, to one of your questions early on, the practicality sort of comes with time. You have to dream big dreams and create big ideas. I'm sure that Elon Musk did not come up with that Tesla overnight. He had a brilliant idea and then he, he changed it and he carved it and he produced it. And that's some of what we're going to have to do. Think big, dramatically, out of the box. And be prepared for people to say you're crazy. Okay, well they said call a lot of people crazy. Called Stephen Jobs crazy. Yeah, look what he's what he created. So Lynn, thank you. And let's let's let me talk to Tim. And I would suggest that that, that Nancy reach out to Tim and see if if he would like to be involved because he's a tough, smart, good man. Great idea. Uh, next is Sam Ogilvy. Yes, thank you, uh, Governor. You may be sorry that you came on and told us about uh, your efforts to reimagine government, because there are a lot of thoughtful people on the call who would love to contribute some ideas to you for that. Have okay. you said to, uh, to Nancy and others uh, a means by which we can get that in? So let, I will get, I will, I will do, I will make sure that she has that. Like I say, we're just... In fact, I just asked them today, you know, they want me to, they wanted me to get out and kind of talk about this, write an op-ed. And I said, look, I'm going to be on this problem solvers call and I'll just tell them. He said, absolutely. So we're just getting going. But yes, the more ideas, the better, um, the more creative, the better. And I'll make sure that uh, that Nancy would know how uh, how to get a hold of us and, uh, and see if, if we can collect some stuff. Where do you live, Sam? I live in uh, Houston by way of Louisiana uh, for the last 40 years, but my uh, college football loyalties still run to Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, personally, for sending Joe Burrow our way. Well, we, I wanted, I was going to about to bring up that it was Ohio that won you that national title. What a kid he is, huh? What a young man. We recognize uh, responsibilities and we're sending them back to you by way of Cincinnati. <laughs> You know, Joe, Joe, one of the things that's true when he's coming back, Joe, one of the things that I've thought about with, uh, you know, one of the biggest problems we have in this country is rural poverty. And in some ways it's as vexing and maybe in some ways more vexing than even urban poverty. Um, what I've been thinking about as we onshore, whether it's the making of materials or pharmaceuticals or whatever, Instead of locating them in the usual places, why don't we think about having those things onshore into areas where people need jobs? Uh, I think particularly of Appalachia, the challenges in West Virginia, where they're still waiting on the coal mines to come back, which they're not, uh, or in Appalachia and Ohio, particularly tough regions where people can get jobs, they can be highly productive, um, and where, you know, and I, I, I've never been, you know, all this, uh, you know, 
you know, raw, raw, we got to build everything in America, but it's become pretty clear, maybe something that I missed a little bit, it's pretty clear that there's many things that we can do here if we're not worried about squeezing the last freaking buck out of everything, Joe. That's what yeah. it's about. That's why we we sent all this stuff around the world because somebody wants to make a little bit more money. Yeah, you remember the old Enterprise Zones, Jack Kemp, Charlie yeah. Rankle? Yeah. It was tax incentives to locate. If you invest in businesses, not just in low-income areas and cities, but in low-income areas and rural areas as well. Don't lose that one, John. Okay, next is Bill Goldston and then Fred Zeidman. I think Sam's got one more comment here. Don't go ahead, Sam. Yeah, I do. I, I do have one more, and that is uh, it sounded as though in your earlier remarks uh, you feel as though the federal government has become much uh, broader in its reach than it can handle well in its grasp, and that a fair amount of what the federal government does right now ought to be sent back to lower levels of government or to the private sector. Would that be a correct proposition? Well, of course. Tell me what they're doing great. Tell me what, what they've been doing that's been great. You know, I, I, it's kind of hard to find it. And it's if you want to be all things to all, well, I don't say all things to all people. I mean, what I'm saying is if you have a business and you have no focus, you don't do anything very well. And so the idea that we would empower states, I mean, this has been talked about. Bob Dole talked about it. Remember, he'd run around the 10th Amendment. He'd pull it out of his pocket. But I think now the time has come to kind of brush off some of those older ideas public-private partnerships. You know, we wanted to build bridges out here based on a public-private accelerated process. Saves you money, more efficient, more effective. Um, You know, when when you start to think about about all these things, you know, I'll give you a good one. I I mean, think about this. This will get people go howl to go crazy. But I think that public education, K through 12, is fundamentally a, a state and local issue. Now, we'd like some federal dollars for things like uh, education for the disabled, things like that. But do we need all this rules and all this bureaucracy? And I'm not advocating firing people. I don't think you need to do it that way. I think it's a process of you don't replace people and you begin to skinny down the workforce. But to me, there are a number of departments that really don't have much use anymore. There might be functions in them that have use, but that's where they can be consolidated under different names, under different, but we're a long way from being able to have that that all put together. But look, I think the fact that we're now beginning to talk about this is the start of a good thing, you know, that, that we just can't ignore this debt. And remember, there was this debate going that they, we have repealed the law of gravity and that we have repealed the law of accumulating debt and we're just going to live in nirvana forever. I think that's going to be squashed here pretty soon. Thank You're you. Right. It's, uh, thanks, Sam. Uh, too big to ignore is, I think, what we're going to start to say. Uh, Bill Galston and then Fred Zeidman, and we're probably going to be right around five then. Bill, why don't you go first? Great. Well, First of all, Governor, uh, thanks for sharing so much time with us. We really do appreciate it as, as an organization. Uh, I want to just connect a couple of thoughts that you've articulated more than once in this call. 
and then ask you what it uh, what they mean. Uh, you know, you've you've said repeatedly that the federal government is too large, too unfocused, doing doing too much that it's not very good at, and it's a little hard to disagree with that proposition. At the same time, if you take seriously the idea of bringing, for example, drug and medical supply production back to the United States and treating it as a national strategic imperative, there's no way that you're going to be able to do that. Very, very significant long-term government subsidies uh, and without setting considerations of price to one side. Uh, So, you know, aren't you talking about an expansion of government, treating, treating the medical medical sector pretty much like the defense sector? Well, let me let me say to you that, you know, as a governor, one of the things we were able to do was to offer some incentives for people to create jobs inside of my state. We just didn't throw incentives at them. We measured them based on the return on investment. I believe that companies are beginning to realize that it's not in their public interest to be making things in China that they don't need to make there anymore. I don't really think that that's you know something that the government has to has to make clear. Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's becoming more and more clear to. I mean, I know because you know I I have my own business and I talk to a lot of companies and they know that it doesn't make any sense to produce these things other places. So I think the key to that are for business leaders locally. In fact, I was on a call yesterday with business leaders who are concerned about, about Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. And they were kind of talking government. I said, well, no, wait a minute here. I mean, you know, universities can have a role in amplifying R&D, but once the companies have the money in, they can, they can help them. But I think that the, what they can do is to create an environment where these workers are going to give you higher productivity. Technology will abound by, by companies that realize that they can do it here. They look better to, uh, to consumers. I think consumers are going to begin to say, wait a minute, where is this made? Why isn't this made in America? So I don't think that takes the government to try to tell people not to do that. I think it makes good common sense. And I think there are appropriate incentives that can be offered by states. But I wouldn't want the federal government to be dictating any of that. I think it's going to happen naturally. Super. Okay, Fred Seidman. Bill, let me just say one other thing. I'm not at all saying the government has no role. I mean, that's part of the problem, I think, where conservatives got in the wrong place. It's sort of like, you know, um, can we put him back up there so I could see him again? uh, He's gone. He looks so good. Right here. Oh, he's there. Didn't see you. They, They took you off or somebody did. You know, it's not like we don't have a role. You know, I mean, one of the things that frustrates me about my political party is like some woman has got a couple kids who's working her tail off trying to support her family. She needs some food stamps. And then we're like, why doesn't she work harder? You know, I think government has its role. But when you look at the federal government and you look at all those buildings and you look at what they're producing, I mean, what are they producing? So you have to be you have to think about this. But that doesn't mean no government. It just means in some sense, government is a last resort, not as a first resort. Can the private sector figure out a way to do this? Can you have the public-private partnerships? But in no way would I say that, um, let me just say another thing, you know, 
Can you tell me what's the CDC been doing? Well, I, I don't. I mean, what's the what NIH been doing? What have they been doing? They're great. They're some of our of our jewels. But how do you think they've been doing? The CDC. <laughs> I mean, you know, <clears throat> and, and what I'm trying to say is, is that if there can be a greater focus on fewer things by the people that work there, the people that oversee them, the people that fund them. I think we can get a better result that way. That's what I'm trying to say. You're here. Fred Zeidman, you still there? Here. I'm right here. Good. Governor? Fred, how are you, Fred? How are you, sir? Where are you driving? Good, good. good. You know, I, I don't know if anybody's uh, uh, aware of the fact that we actually have a presidential election this year in this country. But as we know only too well, American people have historically uh, vote their pocketbook. Uh, you know, I'm obviously I'm in Houston and if I turn this around, you'd see that it's bumper to bumper traffic here. How do you see the American economy as we go into the fall? Are people going to, uh, change their way of spending, change their way of going places, or are they going to, uh, just jump right back into the middle of it? Uh, if, if we're if Houston's a canary in the coal mine and I, Columbus, Ohio is the same thing, people, we opened up and people are everywhere. So I just wonder how you see the American people reacting to the situation they've got now and where the economy uh, might be as we go into the fall. You know, Fred, I, I, my opinion isn't any, any more valuable than any of yours, but I think what we're going to see in these states is we're going to see rolling reopenings. In other words, I mean, I think we're going to see hot spots. I mean, I can tell you about Ohio. I mean, DeWine has said he's, he's been very careful. We are reopening or yeah, beginning to reopen some pieces of the economy. I know that they're keeping their eye on data. We need more masks. We need more contact tracing. I know universities are thinking about how they can do it. But I, I get the sense that people are, are still wary about you know, the fact that they're out in the cars and all that. That's one thing. But I, I get the sense that people are still kind of wary about being out there with, you know, they, they continue to want a social distance. In some places, if you don't wear a mask, they're going to look at you sideways if you're inside of a closed, closed building. Um, you know, I, I watched uh, the, the guy for a little while on Sunday. I mean, I think the recovery is probably more of a U than it is a V. Uh, that's mm -hmm. my sense. And um, it's good news about the vaccine, but, you know, it's early stages. I would be hopeful for treatment. But I think if you go too fast, you're going to see, I think it's called the hammer and the dance. There's a guy that's written a lot about this. The hammer was at the beginning, and now we're in the dance. So how do you dance? Well, you dance a little bit, then you see how it's going. And then if things are going, you can do more. And if you if you can't do more, then if you have to go backwards, you go backwards. I mean, uh, Osterholm and Levitt, uh, Levitt, tremendous uh, Osterholm, one of the great ones, they came up with a sort of a red, see, red, yellow, orange, green system. So you're you're locked down in 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 red, then you get to orange, you open a little bit, you get to yellow, and if things start spiking, you go back the other way. That's how I think a large part of the country is going to be reopened. And um, and we're going to have to see, and we're going to learn. And I think it's, it's got to be data-driven. And But we also have to consider 
Fred, that if you keep it locked down too too long, you suffer the consequences of mental health problems, drug abuse, drug addiction, spousal abuse, but it's a dance. And um, I can tell you in our state, I think they're getting it about right, in my opinion, from what I see. Uh, John, we're just about to five, at five o'clock. We, we said we'd let you go. You've been great. I'm going to give it to Nancy to close, but uh, it's been a pleasure to hear you. You're, and really, I'll say again what I said before. Your mind is working. You've got a lot of experience. You bring it to bear. You're really proving that you can get as much done sometimes out of office than you can in office. And I hope that the American people find a way to get you back into office before very long. You don't have to respond. Make me president, uh, Joe. I'm interested, but other than that, I would. Oh, I like that. Okay, yeah, there you go. And I'm interested. Um, and look on this little project Nancy, I'm talking about. It's all yours, Nancy. Far, I don't know how far this is going to go, but but I'm gonna we're gonna do the best at least kickstart this thing. So great, thank you. It's been fun to be with all of you. Great to be with you, Nancy. You want to close it? Yeah, no, uh, we are now up and running in 14 cities across the country. We had our New York kickoff today with Senator Joe Manchin. I know Senator Bill Cassidy, who's one of our leaders, is going to be visiting also with uh, Tom and Josh will be visiting. So we do have city leaders. Many of them are on the call. Liz Morrison will make sure you'll get the list of all of these more private sessions as we build a community for bipartisan action and uh, build a community of leaders that are going to really put their money where their mouth is and start uh, supporting with hard dollars our members in Congress. Governor Kasich describes the COVID-19 pandemic as a black swan event, and he thinks it requires us to look at the fragile nature of our most complex systems like health, transportation, and commerce. He also stresses the need for budgetary restructuring of the federal government as he sees our debt, climate change, and mental health being the three most critical challenges facing America in the years ahead. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.